a lot to suggest. It is an impossibility to kill Jesus. If you can kill him, he's not Christ. Passover. There was something different about this day, this Passover. There was an expectation and excitement and anticipation. But Jesus no longer walked openly because he realized that forces had been gathered against him. But the fault on every mind and words on every tongue were, will he come? And if he comes, will they dare lay their hands on him? But those temple and synagogue hypocrites with their armed men dare lay their hands on him. And if they do, will all the forces of heaven burst open and consume them? As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he told his disciples where to go to find his conveyance. But they were to go and to find a foal of a donkey. They brought that foal of a donkey to him and laid copes upon him, and Jesus mounted. And as he entered Jerusalem, the thronging crowd began to say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, son of David. It's easy to calculate because of historical record. With some element of accuracy, the number of people that had gathered that day in Jerusalem. In 1864, when one procurator wanting to impress Nero wrote and spoke about the fact that 250,000 lambs had been offered. And if you calculate that, as we know, it was 10 families for one lamb, and that's the number of people it took to make a synagogue, then we would be not far from accurate to then conclude that there were probably around two and a half million people there that day. But if you just take the simplest number of 250,000, if they had put the swords in the hands of 250,000 people who are crying Hosanna, 
it would have started a prairie fire that the temple hypocrites and synagogue hypocrites could never put out. And Cephas knew that. On Monday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And as he leaves Bethany to go into Jerusalem, he sees a tree by the side of the road that appears to bear much fruit. But there's no fruit on the tree. And Jesus curses the tree and goes on his way. And for the second time, he enters the temple. And for the second time, he utters the words, This is my father's house. It is not for a den of thieves. And he scatters everybody in there with a whip. And as it were, cleans the house. The Sadducees were the ruling people of the day. In the back of their mind, they're thinking, who is this man that comes in to upset these poor citizens of Jerusalem from just simply making a living? Who does he think he is? Cephas, who is the ruler of the synagogue, has a lot to think about. How do you kill a man? who can stand before the tomb of a man who's been dead for four days and cried, Lazarus, come forth, and the grave clothes loose him and he comes out. How can you kill a man like that? How can you kill a man who can walk by a tree and curse that tree and the next day walk by that tree and is nothing but a dead stick. How can you kill a man like that? Jesus leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Bethany. Tuesday of the Passion Week is perhaps one of the busiest days of the week. It's a day of multiple encounters for Jesus. Fresh on the heels of of what has just happened in the temple. They ask, who do you think you are to come in here and do this? By whose authority do you do this? Who do you think you are? And Jesus asked them, tell me, the baptism of John, is this from heaven? Or for men. They begin to discuss among themselves how they would answer that. It's sad when you cannot approach an answer and be open and sincere about how to respond. Because they know either way they respond, they are on the horns of a dilemma. And so, it is as it were they plead the fifth and they say nothing. And Jesus then said, I say nothing to you. I would suggest that mindset has not changed today. Religious, religious ask 
Just who do you think you are? What makes you so smart? All the education of all the ages, and you come and you tell me this is how you become a Christian? We're just Johnny Come Latelys. And all we ask people to do is tell us. Baptism into Christ. Is that from heaven? Or of men? Why can't that be sincerely answered? Why can't that be openly answered? Why must one walk away not saying the words? The next group that comes before Jesus is an interesting combination. Politics and religion, religion make strange bedfellows. Because next come the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were not best of friends. You would not have found them going to in and out together sharing a hamburger. They had little tolerance for one another until it came to Jesus. And all of a sudden, they became great friends together. And they think they've got him. They come to him and say, you tell us. Should we honor Caesar? Or should we honor God? They think either way he answers, he's going to be in trouble. And so he says, you see that coin you're asking me about? Whose image is on it? And they said, Caesar's. And in essence, what he tells them is, here's your problem. You are far too interested in the things of Caesar, and you need to be more interested in the things of God. And they go away. The next group that comes are the Sadducees, the ruling class of the day. They make the synagogue work. They control the temple. And they think they have the intractable question that cannot be answered. And so they come to him and they ask, here's a woman. She's been married seven times. And you say, there's a resurrection. Pause. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They did not believe in the spirits. If there's a resurrection, she's been married seven times, then just, just whose wife will she be? Can you not see them in their smugness? Sit back poking, puffing their chest out, thinking, how's he going to answer this? And Jesus said, well, there's a couple things wrong with you at this point. 
Number one, you haven't been reading the Scriptures. And number two, you don't know the power of God. Because if you've been reading the Scriptures, Moses had said that God is the God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob. And they believed that Abraham was still living. If Abraham's still living, yet he's dead, then how is Abraham still living? Proof. There's a resurrection because God is not a God of the dead. God is a God of the living. Second, even if you, Sadducees, can't figure that out, then understand God can figure it out. Just because you can come ask a hypothetical question doesn't mean you have the person you're asking on the horns of a dilemma because that person may not answer that question to your satisfaction. Because even if you can't answer that question to someone's satisfaction, understand God has the power to work it out. So if you'd have been reading the Scriptures and if you'd have been paying attention to the power of God, the dilemma you have is easily solved. Leave hypotheticals to God. But we still struggle with hypotheticals today, don't we? How do people struggle with the command to be baptized for the mission of your sin? Isn't the hypothetical question that is the thorny thing? Well, let me ask you. If this man is on the way to be baptized and a tree falls on him, will he be saved? Well, why not ask this? What if a tree falls on him before he hears? What if a tree falls on him before he repents? Just because someone can ask a hypothetical question does not mitigate a stated objective truth. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And even if you don't have a stated objective truth, understand this. If a person is on the way to be baptized and a tree falls on them and kills them before they're baptized, Understand, God has the power to work that out if you and I can't answer that question to somebody's satisfaction. Beware of hypotheticals that paint a person into a corner. Hypotheticals prove nothing. Hypotheticals answer nothing. Hypotheticals have nothing to do with an objective word of God and have nothing to do with the power of God to work out whatever the limit is that I might not be able to answer to somebody's hypothetical question. But is Tuesday all lost? No, because finally, this man comes and asks the question, Which is the greatest commandment? What must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' response is, You 
are near the kingdom. In other words, thank God. Somebody with a sincere question, sincerely wanting to know, has come and asked the pensive question. Thursday is a pensive day. Jesus enters Gethsemane, having crossed the Brook Kidron. And there takes with him Peter, James, and John. It must have been early in the morning because Peter, James, and John cannot stay awake. They're asleep. You know, it's so easy. Look at those three men and say, what are you thinking? Do you not see who you're with coming into this garden? Can you not stay awake 24 hours? But how many times do we miss significant moments in our lives because we just kind of put a brush over them and sweep them away? It's in this garden that he faces the pensive question that says, Father, be, be your will that this cup pass from me. It's not that Jesus is going to be surprised about what happens. It's not that Jesus doesn't know about what's going to happen. But this is God of the flesh crying out. This is humanity crying out. The Hebrew writer in chapter 5 and verse 7 will speak that he spoke and he cried, as it were, great tears. And Luke will say, and great drops of blood, great drops of sweat drip from his brow as though it were drops of blood. What stress and what anxiety he must have faced. He prays, and the Hebrew, Hebrew writer says, and his prayer was answered. And John would tell us that the Father was ever with him. But while that's taking place in the garden, early in the morning, there are other plans being made. One of the company has walked away and gone to campus and the rivers and said, if you want him, I know where he's at, and I can take you right to him. And they gather themselves with 600 cohorts of soldiers, Roman soldiers, coming with lanterns lit, swords and staves. 600 men come to take one man. They must have thought this is someone really, really bad. Because it required 600 men to come get him. And Judas come with those soldiers. And Matthew says that he's going to betray Jesus with a kiss. Luke's harmony of that. States, when Judas came, 
will you betray me with a kiss? And then John's harmony of that says that when they approached, Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He did not say, well, I saw him five minutes ago, and if you head south and take a left at the first rock, you'll find him praying. No. Jesus said, I am he. And they all fell back. Here are men who doubtless fill with liquid courage, spite in their minds, standing in the face of pristine purity and holiness, and evil cannot stand before him, and they fall back. They pick themselves up. And once again, he asked, Who are you looking for? And once again, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they lay their hands upon him, and they take him. They take him to Cephas and Anna. First, he appeared before Annas. While Cephas, the son-in-law, is the apparent ruler on the throne, as far as the Sadducees are concerned, Annas is the power behind. Annas' time or term has already expired. Now, Annas is sitting in his place, but Annas is still the power behind. And so they bring Jesus to Annas, and Annas tries to play kind of the Dutch uncle. They say, oh, Jesus, tell Uncle Annas what you've done. Tell Uncle Annas what you said. I know you just must have overstated yourself. I know you must have slightly exaggerated the point. Just tell Uncle Annas what you said and everything will be fine. And Jesus answers Annas and says, everything I have spoken and everything I have done has been opened before all. Go ask the people. And for that, he receives a slap. Annas getting no satisfaction. They take him to Caphas. Caphas and the Sanhedrin are already gathered early in the morning. They've already been talking about what they're going to do and how they're going to handle this man. They could not deny, they could not deny the miracles that he had done. They never said he didn't do that. They argued with him about what he said, but they never denied the signs, the miracles, and the wonders that he had done. And they know that is before all the people, and the people have heard what he has said, and they have seen what he has done, and the people believe. And they're concerned about the people, and how can they get this done? 
with the least amount of damage to them because you have this massive amount of people that have gathered for Passover and they have come following him, these throng of people. Well, what they do is they bring him before the judges. Now, judges are supposed to be individuals who are entrusted to adjudicate fairly, impartially, the law. Except these judges have been bribed. But even having been bribed, they cannot all agree they can't get their story straight. And so what they do is they pay a couple of men to lie. And you'll get your story straight like if you're paid to lie. And so the judges, though they're bribed, can't get it straight. These are false witnesses paid to lie. And finally, finally, as he comes before Caiaphas, the witness having been lied, Caiaphas has had it. And he says, tell me, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Had you been his lawyer that day, you would have said, don't answer. Don't say a word. Stay quiet. They haven't proven their case. Don't say a word except Jesus said, as you said, I am. And in great melodrama, Campus rends himself and says, Do you not see this man is blasphemous? He's made himself one with God to say he's the Son of God. Do you not see this? Jefferson already said, listen, the Pharisees, they don't get this. If the Pharisees keep going the way they're going, everybody's going to believe in him. Don't you understand? This man's got to die for the nation. Sounds noble. Except the reason Kepha says he has to die for the nation because if this man keeps going the way he's going, all the power of Rome is going to come down upon us and is going to destroy our little rule and our little treasure trove we have here as puppets to them. This man is spoiling our gig, and he's got to die. He's going to die for the nation, all right. But not for what Cephas said. One of the disciples of Jesus standing by, And he pulls his sword, intending to take the head of Malchus, one of the high priest's servants, off his shoulders. Malchus is as quick on the dodge as Peter is on wielding the sword, and all he gets is the ear. Was Peter thinking, if he won't call down the host of the Lord's army from heaven to defend himself, that I will get this started, and when I pull my sword, and I will my sword, then heaven's going to open, and Michael, the archangel, the captain of the Lord's army, 
is going to come forth from heaven and is going to wipe these people out. One angel of the Lord, angel of the Lord came and wiped out 185,000 Assyrian troops and never blinked his eye. Can you imagine? Jesus said, I have 12 legion of angels at my call, 72,000 angels. It doesn't rhyme. That's why we say 10,000. 72,000 angels. And one angel can slay 185,000 Syrian troops. 72,000 angels can take care of all the Sanhedrin and be back home before the bacon and eggs get cold. And their coffee's still warm. And Jesus says, I can call him, but he is mute. He's silent. Peter thinks if I can just wield this sword, I can start the war. And the war of heaven, the heaven's doors will open, the war will start, and all these hate-filled people will be wiped out. And finally, finally, we can have this utopian kingdom that we've longed for since the days of David again. And all these vassals of Rome and Rome itself will be wasted and gone. And finally, he will set up his kingdom and it will be a day of prosperity for all once again. Except. Jesus doesn't say, boy, Peter, I was waiting on you. Michael was watching to see what you would do. And finally, I have seen that and he's coming. No, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword up. I didn't come to fight this way. Because if I did, I had these legions of angels that could come and they could finish the job. Put your sword up. And Peter has been hit in the solar plexus. Peter gets a lot of guff. And Peter, like we, has a certain impetuosity to him. And Peter, like we, often have a foot and mouth disease. But Peter understood one thing. He believed that he is the Christ and nobody's going to lay their sin-stained, health, filthy hands upon him and I'm going to make sure he's protected. Peter was a man of courage. Peter was a man of conviction and he's going to make sure that Christ lives and he's not going to be taken by these hate-filled people. And now the Lord tells him, put your sword up, and he is crestfallen. Gee, on the heels of that, Peter follows as they take Jesus away. And as they take Jesus away, Peter's on the outside warming himself. And finally, for the third time, denies who Jesus is. And once again... It's easy to point a finger at Peter and say, you shouldn't have done that. Bad boy, bad boy, bad boy. Except understand. He has just been hit in the solar plexus, and he doesn't know who he is. All the other disciples have scattered to the four winds. Peter's still there. They bring Jesus to Pilate. They wake Pilate early in the morning, and Pilate, Pilate responds like a man that's been awakened early in the morning. You ever see that phone call early in the morning? <laughs> About one o'clock this morning, we received a phone call. 
I looked over, did not answer it because I didn't recognize the number. Wireless caller. Called back again. And I answered. And said a couple of the most dumbest things that you could answer because in my sleepy stupor, did not think. And Pilate kind of talks that way. And Pilate says, what are you bothering me for? Listen, I'm in the throes of a good night's sleep and you wake me up. You go take care of him. They said we would, but we can't. We got to bring him to you because only you can say he's worthy of death. And he's made himself a king. Okay, now Pilate's got to hear because now he's a threat to Pilate's rule because the Caesar finds this out that now you've got a king there. He does nothing about it. Okay, give me a chance to get dressed. He wipes the sleep out of his eyes, takes a swig of one cup of hot coffee to wake himself up, and now listens to what the charge is. But Pilate brings him into the praetorium to hear. And these religionists stay outside because they don't want to go into the house of a Gentile and stain themselves. Stop it. You come here with hate-filled hearts, bringing an innocent man you know who is innocent with trumped-up charges, lying about him, and you're worried about going to the house of a Gentile and being stained. That's kind of like us saying, you know, I wouldn't miss a Sunday morning of the Lord's Supper, but then go out, have the most venomous, filled mouth, filthy as we can be. I wouldn't dare miss an attendance of the Lord's services. I wouldn't dare miss that, then go out and live the most immoral life. Wait a minute. You're already stained. Why are you worrying about that? That's what they're, that's where they're at. Pilate goes to the interview. And here's something in the dialect. They say, this is a Galilean, so he's not my problem. I'm going to see him to Herod. And Herod didn't want him any more than Pilate wanted him. But Herod was really deceived to receive him because he wanted to see the show. And Jesus goes before Herod and does nothing to satisfy him. And Herod ushers him back to Pilate. And you got to give Pilate just a modicum, a modicum of credit to be perceptive. Because interviewing him, he realizes this is an innocent man. But he knows if he lets him go, that all the leaders of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin are going to cry to roll and Pilate's job will be in jeopardy, and Pilate's only willing to go so far. And the distance he's willing to go is until and unless it cost him his job. And now when it comes that distance, it's too far to go. And so Pilate says, this is what I will do. I will this day, I will offer you a choice. I have Barabbas, who's an insurrectionist, and I have Jesus, and Pilate's hoping They'll choose Jesus and let him go. And so therefore he can say, I offer them a choice, Caesar, but they chose Jesus instead of Barabbas. But instead they choose Barabbas and they cry forth, 
crucify him, crucify him. And after having scourged him to an inch of his life, they take him to the cross. Can we not see Jesus is forcing them to play their hand. The fullness of time has come for the Son to be offered. Following the trial, the scourging, the cross is laid upon him. And because of sheer exhaustion, Doubtless, dry from having nothing to drink, nothing to eat. The intensity of the night, he only carried the cross so far, and they suborn someone from the crowd to carry the cross. And finally, nail him there. The pilot has one last say because in three different languages over the head of Jesus it says, King of the Jews. And they come back complaining. He said, what I have said, I have said. I've washed my hands of this. It is on you now. It's over. Last cry comes. He says, into your hand I give my spirit, and it is finished. And death has come. Do we think this is the most significant day in human history? They didn't. Hundreds of people have been there to witness this. Probably at age 11, Jesus, William Barclay says at age 11, probably had witnessed resurrection. There was one insurrectionist by the name of Judas who, who had gone to, to Sephora, who had gone to the armory there and had buckled down. And finally, all the power of Rome came and burned the armory around and crucified 2,000 people. And also insurrectionists were crucified all along the Appian Way and they were left to rot on their cross to tell people, this is what you do when you insult Rome. Jesus wouldn't know what that was. Crucifixion was ordinary to them. Do we think this would have been the most central day in all of human history? They didn't. Had we been there, would we have thought that? Only viewed through the lenses of history, Bible history particularly, salvific history particularly, do we understand his crucifixion is key to one further event. And that's his resurrection. That is key to one further event that takes place 42 days after his resurrection. And that is his ascension to the right hand of the Father, now to be both Lord and Christ. Crucifixion was not nice. 
It was not sanitary. If you were going to rate it, it would have the greatest rating you could possibly place on something that would involve blood. Because it was an X-rated event. But here's what took place. Jesus allowed himself to be given so that the impossibility might take place. So that we might have the opportunity for the impossibility. Grace. It was impossible for them to kill Jesus. He gave himself to them. And they were willing vassals. But it's also impossible for us to save ourselves. And he knew he came to give himself to the impossibility. So the humanity might have the opportunity for the impossibility. And that is the message of the cross. It's not a day to hunt eggs. It's not a day once a year to come into an assembly. The first day of every week, there's a memorial to what he offered with his body and his blood. And we assemble to praise and worship him and say thank you for providing the impossibility for us, Lord Jesus. We'll have a prayer and then tell you the verse of the song. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.